Welcome to the Off Duty On Duty Podcast, episode number 14. I'm your host, Brian Eastridge. Welcome to the podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com podcast network. The Off Duty On Duty Podcast, we take topics relevant to today's gun owners, and we tackle them from the perspective of everyday concealed carriers and the perspective of on-duty law enforcement officers to give you both angles of discussion. Today, I'm going to be joined by Kyle Sweet of Sweet Law, CCW Safe, FTA. And we're going to talk about qualified immunity. It's kind of a hot button topic right now, but qualified immunity, uh, it's something a lot of people are uh, curious about and not a lot of people understand. But first, a word from our sponsors. Today's episode is going to be brought to you by Range Tech Bluetooth Shot Timer. Every serious shooter, everyone should have a shot timer to measure speed and accuracy on the range. The new Range Tech Shot Timer is the most affordable, most high-tech, and feature-rich timer on the market. $25 less than competing shot timers, and the Range Tech Timer connects to your phone via Bluetooth and gives you accuracy and power of a dedicated shot timer along with the advantages of online storage, auto-scoring, and much, much more. To learn more, rangetechtimer.com. Our guest today, Kyle Sweet. All right, welcome to the Off Duty On Duty podcast, Kyle Sweet. So let's. Are you there? Can you hear me? Yes, sir. All right. The reason I wanted to have you on the show is for qualified immunity. We keep getting this question of qualified immunity, like what is it? What does it do? Etc. And a lot of the concealed carry populace don't quite understand what it is on the law enforcement side of uh of the house so i figured who well, better they're not sp- alone <laughs> there, yeah. there, there's uh, nor do police officers and no, nor do many lawyers so concealed carriers who have an interest in this issue of what is qualified immunity and should i be for it or against it you're not alone it's a big tent of people who don't really fully understand it okay so let's uh so let's just tackle it from this what is it well, it is essentially, uh, and I'm going to try really hard not to go down the rabbit hole, which you and I tend to do, but fortunately there's no alcohol involved. So our rabbit holes tend to not be quite as deep. Right. Uh, so, but basically qualified immunity is an affirmative defense that is extended to, uh, uh state officials, which includes law enforcement officers, uh, due to section 1983, uh, which is a civil rights uh, act of 1871, basically, that had, heretofore had been historically used uh, to assist the government in combating Ku Klux Klan. Uh, and what that essentially had said was uh, that the, the qualified immunity is a judicially created doctrine that shields government officials from being personally liable for constitutional violations, such as the right to be free from excessive police or force, uh, police force. Uh, they, and that means essentially they can't be found liable for money damages under federal. And here's the kicker. So long as the officials quote unquote, clearly established law. So, uh, that's where everything kind of gets reconstructed over the years. And so the clearly established law has morphed into, and we could go through all the iterations of section 1983 law, but I think it's important to talk briefly about the landmark case of Harlow versus Fitzgerald from 1982, 
that articulated the modern formulation of qualified immunity that we still have the remnants of today. And they basically, they jettisoned the past precedent uh, that examined the subjective good faith of the officer who committed the alleged violation. So the Harlow court adopted a new test framed in the term, in the context of objective terms. So that court said that a plaintiff could overcome qualified immunity, but only by showing that the defendant's conduct, conduct in this situation, the law enforcement officer violated clearly established statutory or constitutional rights of which a reasonable, reasonable person would have known. So the court made it clear that there's a new standard was intended to be more protective of government officials than its previous test. And yet they provided no, they did say that, you know, being a state actor does not provide, you know, a license for lawless conduct. Uh, But the problem there became uh, since Harlow, the court has applied the doctrine in three distinct ways that have progressively made it more and more favorable to government defendants. So, Harlow happened in the Civil Rights Act of 1871, which gave gave rise to the Section 1983 claim, was uh, reimagined in the Harlow case in 1982 to kind of refine the standard to basically say, uh, you know, what a uh, reasonable uh, uh, person would have known. So that's where you get like the reasonable officer standard, which is a continuum, right? right? It's not a black and white line. It's basically the least reasonable of the least informed officer, uh, reasonable officer. So this is like your D minus. Okay. Right. Uh, and, and so that's that. And that meets would the D minus officer would meet the Harlow standard of, of, uh, of reasonableness. So the way that it's become since Harlow, the courts have applied the doctrine, like we said, in three ways, making it more and more favorable to government officials. The first one is the law was, uh, in order to show that the law was clearly established that the plaintiff must overcome, the court has generally required plaintiffs uh, to point to an already existing judicial decision uh, with substantially similar facts. So what that means is uh, th- whoever is the first person to litigate a specific harm is really out of luck because there's no precedent. So the first time around, the right violated won't be clearly established. Uh, since the first time around, you know, it's, mm-hmm. there's there's no precedent. So, but a recent decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals illustrates the, the point. In that case, a SWAT team fired tear gas grenades into a plaintiff's home and caused extensive damage. While the it was a divided three judge panel, not the full on banc ninth uh, circuit, uh, assumed that the SWAT officers had in fact violated the plaintiff's Fourth Amendment rights. It nonetheless granted qualified immunity to the SWAT officers because it determined that the precedents that the plaintiff relied on did not clearly establish a violation at the appropriate level of specificity with the facts of that case. So, so, and the Supreme court decided uh, to review, they could decide to review the ninth circuit's decision in, in in this case, but I I don't know the status of that uh, certiorari appeals. So that's the first one was uh, clearly established was refined to even make it more difficult uh, so what I what I substantial specificity, right? So so what I'm gathering from all of this is that it is wrought with ambiguity. <laughs> you know, it is, and 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 I don't want to go on and on and, and right. go down the uh, a well that bores the crap out of people. But I do think it's important to get a historical understanding of, of of not only what it is but also why, and 
Uh, other ways they've altered it is it, it, basically, and we can cut to the chase of this. The courts have used a lot of different cases to further and further create obstacles for civil rights plaintiffs to sue public officials for uh, in, in allegations where they're accusing them of violating their civil rights and and or even breaking the law. And so, so, so that it's it's has become to where we are today in November of 2020. It is it is the most difficult it ever has been for a civil rights plaintiff to sue a state or federal official for violating that plaintiff's constitutional rights and causing them some type of a harm. So that's that's the general background of qualified immunity. And the next thing is that is why? What is the justification? Why do we even have it anyway? What's the benefit of it? And in general terms, there's been two justifications. Essentially, there's social costs, you know, as far as you know, minimizing social costs. Uh, in, 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 and what that means is, you know, if, if every police may be sued, then you would have, and, and all, and you could, every, every, having myself and a former police officer, every single person I write a ticket to could have sued me and gained some level of leverage over me personally. And why am I going to go to court and argue a speeding ticket when that person has a, a civil case pending against me for violating their civil rights? What am I going to do? I'm going to be more inclined to do what? Kick the ticket, you know, seek to make the civil case against me go away. So there's a very much of a, a social cost reasoning for having public officials acting in the course and scope of their employment, even when they're making mistakes that do, in fact, violate somebody's rights, get immunity from personal liability exposure. Now, so that's one of the type of the social costs. Now, does that exempt the governing body or agency from liability? Uh, it, it, it can. Mostly, it's, it's used for, it's, it's for the benefit of the, of the official, the officer, the fireman, the sheriff's deputy, whoever. Uh, it's, the, the agency can still be sued for the actions of that person, but it does exempt their individual personal liability. So they're, it, it basically is another way to say they're acting under the color of, uh, of their authority. Right. So in other words, if somebody busts in the wrong house and smokes everybody in the house accidentally and they made a terrible, tragic mistake, uh, you know, they can be sued individually and it would be uh, they, they would personally have qualified immunity. But their department would be responsible for their negligent actions under a theory of negligence because they're they're not suing under a violation of their constitutional rights. And these are only civil. It does not protect officers from criminal liability whatsoever. Right. See, and I think that's where a lot of the confusion comes from because when we hear in the media age movies and all these other things, when we, we hear about, well, they're, they're immune from prosecution because they're turning state's evidence or you, you hear these little buzzwords in your, your favorite crime drama on TV and I think a lot of people don't understand that qualified immunity has like very little to do with criminal prosecution, if anything. Right. Well, and people mix them and they're completely different standards. And let's take, for instance, the George Floyd, you know, tragedy. And I, I say tragedy, honestly, it's a tragedy for uh, Mr. Floyd's family. It's a tragedy for everyone touched by that issue. It, you know, I think all of us collectively, our hearts break for every body involved in that whole thing. We don't, we weren't there and we don't know what happened, but we, we do know is that our country has, has, uh, has suffered from it. People we all care about, uh, different backgrounds, uh, you know, racially view that differently. And, and, and a lot of people have been hurt by it. And so let's look at that kind of a lightning rod case in the context of qualified immunity. 
at this point, the three officers, Derek Chauvin, the main actor, and the other three officers are all being charged with criminal offenses. So uh, those, those three officers also happen to be what's called judgment proof. All right. Uh, you can go sue those officers for violating his civil rights, Mr. Floyd's civil rights, and they don't have th- any money to pay a, a, a money a judgment, money judgment. Uh, so l- litigation in that sense is essentially, you know, pointless in the context of, of seeking monetary uh, damages for the violation, if any, of Mr. Floyd's constitutional rights at the hands of those officers. So, uh, but notwithstanding, the far greater risk to those officers is in that situation is criminal prosecution, and they're currently being out of criminal pending charges against them. So, this feeling, this people using the phrase "qualified immunity" as if it's uh, "ali ali income free" for police officers is is sorely mistaken. That's not the case. It can be an affirmative defense, which means the burden to assert an affirmative defense in a civil case rests with the person asserting the defense. So the officers have the burden. It's not a matter of, of the plaintiff lawyer who's or, or you know. Uh, civil rights lawyer who's suing the individual officer on behalf of the injured person or their family member alleging civil rights violations. Uh, they, they don't, their case is not kicked out of court just because they sued a cop individually. You know, the, the, the burden, they can make their case and the officer has the burden to show uh, the standards once they assert that defense. So it's, and many of them get kicked out of court on summary judgment before ever going to a jury. And that's the way our legal process works. But to, to, to have an, if people out there in the concealed carry world think that qualified immunity means there's zero legal consequence for an officer who makes a mistake and violates someone's uh, civil rights, that's flat out wrong. That is only an impact on the civil liability of that individual officer, not criminal and not on the agency for the actions of that officer. What you're saying is, or to break down that, that previous part is the burden of proof lies in your ability to show that you didn't violate their civil rights, as opposed to in a criminal case where the state has the burden of proof to prove you did something. You're not under the burden of proof to prove that you didn't. <laughs> they have to bring that case to show that you did in fact, or, or prove evidence that you that you did in fact commit this crime on the civil side. It's you have the burden to defend yourself by showing that you didn't do something or you, you didn't break the threshold of, of, is that, is that kind of what I'm getting or, or. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, you're on the right track, but there is one caveat to that. Okay. Is you do not have the burden as, as a, let's say I'm your civil defense lawyer and you've been sued for violating someone's civil rights in your individual capacity. And it's in, in my asserting your uh, qualified immunity defense under section 1983, Brian, I'm going, I don't have to prove that you didn't violate their civil rights. What I have to prove uh, is that uh, the right violated had to have been so clear that it's violation in your case would have been obvious, not just to the average reasonable officer, but to the least informed, the least reasonable officer. Wow. That's a pretty because strong standard. That's this, 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 yeah, exactly. That's why, and these have been interpretations by the court over the years to strengthen the public official, the officers uh, standing to assert that right. So 
I, you don't have to prove that you did not violate the rights. You just had to have, have to establish uh, that uh, there was no clear violation in this case that would have been obvious, not just to the average reasonable officer, but to the least informed, least reasonable, reasonable officer. So I know that sounds like word games, and I'm sure it shocks you coming from a lawyer, but, uh, but that's what it is. It's not an affirmative defense where you have to prove all the elements and prove you didn't do it. You just have to prove that it wasn't uh, and your actions were not unreasonable or your mis- another way to think about it is your mistake uh, was not uh, unreasonable under the circumstances and spe- specifics of that particular case. Okay. So for lack of a better words, I'm still thinking like that is, that is really wide open to interpretation. There's really not a, I mean, there is a standard set, but it, it's even the standard itself sounds to be pretty, uh, pretty ambiguous. So what, what would you say the, uh, like the outcry over qualified immunity? Now I know with, like you, you mentioned George, the George Floyd incident, that seems to have really brought the qualified immunity topic to the forefront. What do you think there's, there's room for, uh, I hate to say improvement, but other than it being a hot button topic, why do you think that that is being pushed as such the push to the forefront now uh, because of incidents like this? I mean, what what's the the motivating factor for for trying to modify or eliminate that? Great question. And uh, so I think there's a couple of different there's two fronts of attack against qualified immunity currently in this country. One is that it's bad law. And second is that it's bad policy. So on the law issue, the most uh, famous critic uh, on the bench has come from Justice Clarence Thomas. And, and there's a, a, a one case on qualified immunity, uh, like 2016 or 2017. He, in a solo opinion, he urged the court, uh, basically, in an appropriate case, he urged them to reconsider it, it qualified immunity jurisprudence because he's an originalist. And he believes that in qualified immunity cases, the pre- Supreme Court should ask whether the common law in 1871, when Section 1983 uh, was enacted, would have accorded immunity to an officer for a tort analogous to the plaintiff's claim under Section 1983. In other words, but, but in, 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 Do- in Judge Thomas's, Justice Thomas's view, the modern doctrine has strayed too far from the 19th century immunities that were, that were contemplated when uh, that statute was enacted. And so rather than interpreting the statute, Thomas argues the court's qualified immunity jurisprudence represents the exactly the freewheeling policy choices that are not within the providence of court's authority. Uh, and he's even written articles uh, in, uh, in which he cited in his opinion, uh, you know, that qualified immunity derives from a putative common law rule that existed when Section 1983 was adopted. So from a law standpoint, Justice Thomas has been probably the leading figure on the bench to say it's bad law because it strays too far from an originalist constitutional interpretation. So the bad policy side, uh, you know, the uh, opponents uh, contend that the balance is wrong. And uh, Justice Sotomayor, who has called qualified immunity a one-sided approach, and there is a lot of legitimate legal scholars who believe that it is that it is too one-sided and she believes that it transforms the doctrine into an absolute shield for law enforcement officers. And it and captures the core of that critique and an opinion that she was joined in by uh, the late 
uh, Justice Ginsburg. And as they put it, qualified immunity sends an alarming signal to law enforcement officers and the public. It tells police that they can shoot first and think later. It tells the public that palpably unreasonable conduct will go unpunished. So uh, it, it, that type of a reasoning is, is generally attracted a diverse uh, legal ideological coalition because they feel that uh, you know the, the balance has become disproportionate and even a, a terribly egregious actions of, of police uh, provides no consequence for them. And so that's that's the section that's bad policy that it's too unbalanced. And so you you got the opponent saying it's it's bad law, meaning strays too far from the originalist interpretation of the Constitution by many people on the right. And you also have people from all spectrum saying it's unbalanced, meaning it's too much in the favor of the uh, of the police officer. So the interesting uh, dynamic about this is now you wrap up into a a social movement of any tactic I can use to gain some level of control or force additional accountability onto police, that's what I want to take. Even if it destroys the historic balance of, you know, that allowed a police officer to, to have some type of civil legal consequence for, you know, very bad uh, violations or any violation of someone's constitutional rights that does not disrupt government and make public officials too reticent to do their jobs. So uh, I think a legitimate cr critique of current, uh, or I say current, but in the last 20 years, interpretation of uh, state actor qualified immunity has been uh, that the courts have continued to go too far to to that officer. And it's like anything, even it, to me, it's equivalent of like the person standing there in the, at the footsteps of a Capitol dressed like a SWAT officer, it, it arguably is, the, is a greater uh, threat to our Second Amendment rights than, you know, somebody who's just not into guns. It's kind of the same type of analogy, the, 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 the mere absolute immunity that qualified immunity gets to could arguably a greater threat to a balanced doctrine of qualified immunity that is enjoyed and protects our police officers from having doubt creep into their mind when they're engaging in the enforcement activities of their job because they don't want to be tied up in litigation or that it becomes the, a tactic that, that, uh, people will use. And right now, this is my biggest concern that, uh, that makes me a proponent of, of uh, more of a status quo on our qualified immunity is because with funds being raised to engage in uh, litigation over every, you know, officer involved shooting and alleged officer uh, police brutality uh, and all other types of, of matters involving, you know, law enforcement is that it can tie up Re, you know, precious resources of a, of a department. And, uh, and I think that that's what we're seeing as a, as a, as a front is litigation against police. Anytime they involve a use of force or any type of, uh, you know, even, you know, non-lethal. And so, and, but for qualified immunity, it would be very difficult for a police officer to do his or her job or a police department to be able to afford to do the type that police agencies are going to have to do become less militarized in the and to be more inclusive and already hiring because if your departments are spending five times as much on litigation in the next 10 years what's going to happen 
we're not going to be able to get more minorities hired in police departments because we're going to be under hiring freezes. We're not going to be able to engage and fully deploy the extent of current state-of-the-arts technology on non, non and less lethal types of force, uh, which is going to make it more inclined for an officer to, to have fewer tools in their toolbox and engage in force more often. So it's one of these things to be careful what you wish for. Right. Uh, you know, I think that uh, the people who are seeking police reform are doing so in all avenues and fronts, which which some of which are going to prove themselves to be, uh, you know, doing more harm than the good they hope to come by them. So I'd kind of like to tailor this into uh, like here in Oklahoma. I, I remember a bill and I, I don't forgive me. I don't remember the exact details of it it seemed to kind of go along the lines of qualified immunity with the stand your ground stuff. I believe it was tied into the stand your ground laws where basically they tried to eliminate civil liability for people that were found to be righteous in, in a self-defense scenario. You know, if someone breaks into your house and you enact some type of level of force to them to protect your home, your family, et cetera, that now that suspect is not, uh, could not sue you or hold you liable for injury the way that they could previously. Is that kind of a form of the qualified immunity? Maybe you could speak to that just a little bit kind of from the. Sure. Like well, I think arm. it's a, it's a very astute analogy. It's very analogous to, to that because it is, you know, self-defense is, is a common law defense. Uh, but when you involve things like, you know, castle doctrine, stand your ground, make my day, all those different types of, of uh, you know, political uh, acts that have been done to try to make people feel more uh, protected, you know, when mm-hmm. they use force uh, are, are all kind of the same same thing. It's just it, it's a, it's an affirmative defense that is being strengthened. Uh, you know, you had the common law defense would be analogous to what section 1983 meant in 1871. So in that setting, it's really, it's interesting. And then there's been an arc to the qualified immunity since then to current days that's been strengthening and uh, in favor of the person uh, of the state actor and in self-defense law, which was is common law, which precedes the United States, even uh, that in in recent years uh, there's been less court, interpretations and more literal legislative actions are creating additional affirmative defenses for the private citizen in different contexts and situations you know, some people, some States extend the castle doctrine to their car or their office or uh, you know, their child's home or their neighbors or wherever they happen to be having a legal right to, you know, to be. Uh, And so, and then you have the make my day and you have all these different doctrines that allow for uh, that is true self-defense uh that came to us from the common law so yeah it's been an arc and but ultimately the the one takeaway it's an affirmative defense it will not prevent you from being sued it will only preclude if proven then it operates as a barrier to liability and you're immune from further if you establish and prove what you have to under the affirmative defense then you're then you're gold that is a lot this uh this topic, when uh, when we pitched it around with concealedcarry.com, I said, man, of all the topics, whether it be training or, you know, use of force or, you know, judicious marksmanship, whatever you want to call it, I was like, I think of all of them, 
probably the most convoluted and difficult to understand is qualified immunity. But right now, that is being pushed to the forefront of the public's eye uh, because of all the, the the activist activities that are going on right now. It's even after working in law enforcement for 18 years, it's still very difficult for me to grasp exactly what it is and what it what it means, it, how that protects you from civil liability to some degree. I've seen examples of how it's worked in law in the favor of law enforcement, uh, the off the individual officers, having been through lawsuits and and been witness to lawsuits and civil tort claims, etc. I kind of understand the practical application thereof. This topic spans. Well, would you say it was originally written in 1871? I mean, yes, a <laughs> hundred and uh, 150 years. <laughs> that's in, that's incredible. So from that standpoint, here's, well, here's one, here, here's one more mind blower. Okay. You don't mind me. Yeah, please do. I'm, for, I'm, I'm buried uh, in this one, so, Kyle. I'm like, yeah. So what, what, one of the criticisms of qualified immunity is that it stunts the development of constitutional law in that it, because it's so difficult to bring a case of, uh, against qualified immunity uh, due to the fact that the standard has gotten so difficult to overcome for a civil rights plaintiff that it has become, can you name me the seminal case on tasers? No. This is from the Supreme court. No, I can't either. And I, I do this for a living. Can you name me the seminal case on less lethal shotgun? No, <laughs> no. What about chokeholds? What about, you know, so the whole point of this is from the, from the opponent side to qualified immunity, uh, in cases involving new technologies, practices, or police, uh, you know, uh, a- activities, it makes it very difficult. So a lot of these, you know, important constitutional questions from their perspective, like the militarization of the police, the use of the empl- deploying these new technologies, go unanswered. And it's because you have to have some level of precedent, some level of, of uh, uh, and the reasonableness scale being so such a continuum that they just wind up not getting to the uh, appellate courts from my standpoint after 18 years in law enforcement the the amount of technology and technique tactic uh, less lethal devices uh, it is changing almost weekly i've never seen it evolve at a more rapid pace than it is right now and you know i mean i got into law enforcement in 2002 i've said that in previous podcasts and there were still guys running around with wheel guns and straight sticks, you know, and <laughs> the tool, even the tools on the officer's belt have rapidly changed. So I'm in the last 18 years, it's incredible to, to look at even what I was issued as a brand new guy to what the tools that we give them and train them on now. Um, it, it, it's like two different jobs. I didn't carry a laptop to class when I was in the Academy, <laughs> you know, and right. from the legal standpoint, you're having to have a precedent for almost every one of those tools, equipments, techniques, and it's constantly evolving, but there is no landmark case on a lot of these new tools and equipment is kind of what you're, that's really what you're saying is there's not a yeah, yeah, and just as a quick example, uh, there's the, the Supreme Court, and I am not a, 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 a I do not profess to be a, uh, you know, a Supreme Court expert, 
Uh, but I'm a lawyer and, and I'm a former cop and I represent police and I spend a lot of time in law school, like all other law students studying constitutional law. Uh, I don't consider myself a constitutional law scholar, but I'm a lawyer who practices in this area regularly. So, uh, so, so what the Supreme court typically does is they have a conference and they decide what cases are going to come up and they argue about it. And ultimately the, uh, the chief justice makes a determination of what's going to get heard. And there are cases that are coming forward uh, with the op- opportunity to be heard involving police shootings, uh, a dog uh, be- being uh, deployed on a suspect who had already surrendered, uh, taser cases, in-custody deaths, these types of things. And so I, I think it's uh, fair to say that based on the current makeup of, of the court, it probably signals a consistent status quo on the doctrine of qualified immunity Uh, in the event that the Supreme court can do things which surprises us, which they can. And I think, you know, they've shown that with the affordable care act, they've shown that with, you know, some other uh, types of decisions that justice Roberts has joined the more, you know, the more progressive wing of the courts uh, as in in certain rulings has, has been, that uh, if there is a surprise, it might come from one of these accepting of one of these types of cases. And if so, because the Supreme Court created qualified immunity and they can, of course, overrule it subject to its you know, principles of, uh, of stare decisis. I think there's steam coming out of my ears now because this is really, really engaging into territory that I, I am completely unfamiliar with. One of the, uh, when you were talking landmark cases, uh, the one that sticks out, there's actually two, uh, Tennessee versus Garner. That's one that I think every cop in America is drilled with from day one, which is in short, don't shoot fleeing felons unless you really, (laughs) unless it meets a standard of reasonabulness. Right. Um, you know, well, just, and there you, and let's let's examine let's examine that for a second, Brian. And that that's mm-hmm. so. Let's say I, I my, my son Leo that you both know mm-hmm. you both know is uh, thirteen, and let's say he's he's eighteen years old and he's uh, just robbed a convenience store and he's fleeing. And you have and you're the officer on on the call, and all you get dispatched is there was a robbery and the person's headed westbound on Elm Street, and you see him and you chase him down and you give commands and he. Uh, and, and, you know, you, and he's jumping over a fence and you fire at him and, and hit him and you never saw a weapon. You say, well, he's running. It was running from a robbery. That would be a violation of Garner versus Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, now let's take that same scenario. And Leo has just, uh, walked into his girlfriend's house and shot her and her parents. And her little brother goes to a school three blocks down the street and recesses out and you recognize him and you start chasing him and he's running to that school where you know uh, that there's a child there that is family members with the people that were just, you know, executed in that house. Th- that's a different story. Right. You know, th- that is he at that point. Yes, he's a fleeing felon. But the, the circumstances of that scenario would would give you reasonableness because of the fact that it's likely that he's going somewhere to do violence. And so it's the context is king 
in all of these types of situations, you can shoot a fleeing, you can still shoot a fleeing felon, but you better be right. You can shoot a fleeing felon under very, very limited circumstances. Right. And so a lot of times we, we is, is in America have gotten less and less uh, able to explore nuance and we want black and white answers. Either you can shoot somebody or you can't, and it's never that simple. And so that is one of the biggest things I think that concealed carriers should should understand for for their appreciation for law enforcement and even their their right to critique law enforcement, which they absolutely have the right to do that. But also it should it should come with an overwhelming sense of humility for themselves as a concealed carrier. Because if you've got someone like you and me who have literally been, you know, the ones carrying the badge and gun with, you know, cloaked with the authority of training and all that to make a right decision. And we can screw up, you know, there is under most circumstances, there's not a qualified immunity doctrine for someone who, who runs in, in, in at Walmart and thinks there's a robbery and smokes three people and come to find out it was some kid with a gun. You know, you do not have qualified immunity. You cannot think of yourself as a concealed carrier as having the same rights, responsibilities, as a law enforcement officer, even is particularly in the, in the situations where you're trying to intervene. And so it's just, it should be a very reminder of the incredible, the awesome responsibility of carrying a, a firearm uh, for your, your protection of yourself and your family. And, and, and it's incredibly important to get training from uh, all the awesome trainers in the concealed carry network, people like yourself, uh, Brian, who actually can, can not only train someone how to most effectively shoot, and make tactically sound, you know, choices on, on, uh, tactical movement, but also the most important muscle in shooting is that one between the ears. And that's, I know something you personally devote a lot of your, uh, time on the range is teaching them to make a decision, uh, a judgment that will have tremendous scrutiny, uh, if they happen to, to make the decision to go. I accidentally rattled off at the head one day in front of our, our cohort, Steve Moses and, I said, you know, there's three outcomes to using your firearm. You're either going to go to prison, you're going to save your life, or you're going to get sued. And in a bad situation, all three are going to happen at once. So, and he quoted me that in an article and I was just kind of, you know, just talking and, uh, he goes, no, that that's, that's really about it. So when you were talking about the, the, the muscle between your ears there, one of the things in my classes that I'm really big on is you need to make the shooting portion real easy for yourself. Like you need to just be able to do that without putting a lot of thought because the bandwidth of your brain is going to be devoted to all the things going around, going on around in and around the situation. So if you have to devote a lot of brain power to, okay, now I need to get my gun out of the holster. Now I have to align the sights and I have to do all of these things. If I have to put thought into that, I'm not putting thought into, do I need to shoot this person? Do I need to run away? All the tactical considerations around it. So I'm real big on subconscious performance with the handgun, that the handgun or, or rifle, whatever you're using, whatever tool you're using, the implementation of that just needs to be a reaction to a stimulus all of the other brain power that you have needs to be devoted to solving this problem. In all, all honesty, all of the officers that I've ever talked to that's been in a shooting civilians, the shooting portion was very, very simple. It was all the convoluted nature of everything else going on, compounding that problem. That was difficult. The, the, the act of employing the handgun was just, that was the tool that needed to be employed and it. And it was, 
So that's something that I, I'm really, really stringent on is you have to make shooting a, that, that does not need to be a decision. The decision to shoot needs to be the big decision maker, right? The actual act of employing the handgun just needs to fall in that subconscious plane. So uh, that was a little aside that has nothing to do with qualified immunity, but the flip side of that is you've got to free up that brain power to be able to make the right decision. So, well, I think the point why that is so important to qualified immunity, Brian, is you're because of what you do for a living, you're most likely to get involved in a shooting in the capacity of your employment as a law enforcement officer. Uh, me, I'm most apt to get involved in a shooting in my capacity as a private citizen who has a concealed carry permit. And it's important for all listeners out there and anyone who's a concealed carry permit to know the difference between the standard that you have and the legal protections that are, that come to you as a, as a state official under qualified immunity uh, that come as in contrast that with what comes to me in the, in a parking lot of a mall, my margin of error is razor thin. Your margin of error is as wide as the river. Mm-hmm. And so people need to understand that and, and also understand that when they're getting, you know, uh, training by someone who's a law enforcement officer, someone who's a civilian, someone who's been in the military, all of those people have different perspectives and context within which they're, they're teaching you. In military circles, you have rules of engagement, and those rules of engagement differ based on, uh, you know, decisions by legal, decisions by political officials, by policy. And so you may be somewhere, you, you may have been used in Iraq or Afghanistan where the rules of engagement or any military-aged male with a gun. And now you come back to the U.S. and you're going to teach a concealed carry holder uh, you know, you better make sure as a trainer that you're also training yourself on the distinctions between different defenses, affirmative defenses that come to a private citizen via self-defense law and the types of defenses that would come to maybe one of your law enforcement students vis-a-vis qualified immunity from Section 1983 or uh, the, the Bevins case So, with your federal law enforcement officer. So those are really important uh, distinctions for people to understand. And a more educated, uh, you know, responsible, uh, concealed carry world uh, makes is the best protection for our Second Amendment rights, I believe. Absolutely. With all that, let's let's dive semi-controversial on one thing. If Kyle Sweet, as an attorney, if he could make a change to qualified immunity, what would that look like? Well, that's a great question, and 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 I think it. I think just like if if I could personally wave my magic wand and and have gun owners do something you know more responsible that I think is a per, better protection for my Second Amendment rights, I would. In the context of qualified immunity, I think it would be uh, some, some balance uh, because it, it, and I think the reason I say that and what I mean by balance is I do believe that our law enforcement officers are and should be entitled to qualified immunity when their actions don't violate a clearly established statutory or constitutional right, but they're not very well set forth. I think if we got some guidance from the court on, on, on further refining the definitions of reasonableness would be helpful. And, uh, and I also think that there should be a, tremendous opening of dialogue. And I think we see it in our city 
uh, where there are uh, where we educate our public on what exactly qualified immunity is, and that there are ways that in which that you know bad actor officers can uh, you know where citizens can raise their complaints about them. And, uh, and there are people who feel even in law enforcement that qualified immunity has made it more difficult for agencies to get rid of, of bad act or officers. And I think that's, that's wrong headed. And the reason I say that is I think departments have to have a very positive relationship with, with their labor unions. And, and the, and we, we have that here in our community. We have a, uh, you know, a, a chief who has tremendous respect for, our largest, you know, agencies, uh, union fraternal order of police and vice versa. And when you have that, then the, the union is much more inclined to accept things, uh, you know, certain disciplines for officers, certain, certain types of, you know, training than if, if there's a truly adversarial relationship. And we've seen that too in, in the past. Yeah. And when you have that, the, the department, the union, the department cannot, create the type of change they want to demonstrate to the people they serve us in the community. If there's a poor relationship between man, you know, uh, command and, and, uh, and the, the officer fleet of officers vis-a-vis the union. And so officers in this context, I, I can tell you personally that we have fantastic people. They want to do the right thing and they also don't want to be personally sued, uh, and have ever have, have the little things they work very hard for, you know, their home, their retirement and things like that subject to criminal or subject to civil, uh, you know, uh, penalty in a, in a civil verdict. But also the fact of the matter is most uh, police officers are still going to be covered civilly by their actions will be by the municipality under a negligence stand, uh, standpoint, because even if there's tor- governmental tort claims, uh, you know, act coverage, it may cap the liability, but it caps it. At a set statutory amount in Oklahoma, it's like 150, uh, or the amounts of insurance coverage. And most municipalities are insured at more than this, the Governmental Tort Claims Act uh, limits. So there's there's just a lot of ways for for people to still recognize that if, if they are if they are constitutional rights are harmed by a police officer, uh, you know, getting personal funds from that officer is highly overrated, and they're going to be very dissatisfied. Uh, you know, the average police officer, you know, uh, you know, you want, you want to make my alimony payment by all means, please do, you you now own it. Right. So it's not like these, the police officers sitting here with some, with a pot of gold at the end of the litigation rainbow, that this, the municipalities are the ones who are going to be the targets of that in a, uh, in a, in a case where they're responsible via vicarious liability for the actions of their agent, the officer. So, this whole thing about qualified immunity, I, think, I do think sometimes it's, it's important and it's an important conversation to have, but I think it gets blown out of proportion because people perceive that there can be zero justice for someone who's been wronged by a police officer. And that's just not true. You, you still have, a, you still have a, a civil remedy against their employing agency who actually has means with which to satisfy a judgment. You actually you still maintain criminal uh, uh, liability against that officer through the district attorney's office. So this feeling that qualified immunity equals no accountability for law enforcement is just flat out wrong. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your time, Kyle. This is a uh, man. This is a rabbit hole that we could go on. 
this this may warrant maybe a follow up episode at some point, and uh, maybe some some practical examples of you know maybe where where qualified immunity didn't cover someone or or where it did. Maybe we could uh, we could hash that out uh, at some point. I definitely appreciate you taking the time to be on the show, and uh, we'll we'll wind it down. Anytime, Brian. Thank thank you for having me. I really appreciate. It. I always enjoy conversations with you. Well, this one I feel like, uh, pardon the pun, that I was severely outgunned. So uh, <laughs> that was this one kind of uh, turned the propeller on my hat pretty hard. So, all right, Kyle, we'll talk well, to you. Well, you know what you. What's that? Go ahead. More, uh, you, you got a lot more not average bear. So I enjoy, always enjoy talking to you about these things. And I really mostly enjoy our conversation teaching me more about guns or guitars or any other myriad of other cooking and the other hobbies we, we share in common. Watches. <laughs> That's a whole nother yeah, episode. <laughs> All right. We'll talk <laughs> sure. to you soon, Kyle. Episode 14. Qualified immunity. Thanks for tuning in. A reminder, check out our sponsor for this episode, Range Tech Bluetooth Timers. And as always, EDC Belt Company as the honorary sponsor because that's part of me. So check them both out. If you haven't already, please subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. And we will catch you next week where we bring back our old friend Hanny McMood and we're going to talk through a couple of uh a couple of contentious topics. All right guys, have a good one. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC presents the following content for educational purposes only. Always take proper precautions, follow all firearm safety rules, consult with a competent firearms instructor and have trained medical staff on hand when operating live firearms. Legal content commentary, or explanations do not constitute legal advice. We are not attorneys and recommend always consulting with competent legal counsel when researching or seeking to understand laws and legal application. Eastridge Training and Consulting LLC, its participants, partners, and affiliates are not liable for any action taken based on the content of this shared podcast.